Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, February 1st. We've got fresh earnings releases from Apple and Facebook. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Fool.com tech specialist Evan New on Skype. Evan, what is going on? Tired, man. It's a busy week. Like I said last week, earnings season. There's no sleep for you during earnings season. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep up to date on what's going on with all these companies, you know? Uh, someone's got to do it. It's a tough job, and we appreciate that you do it for us, Evan. We had a lot of big companies this week. We can, we can only cover so much, though. We can only cover so much. Uh, we are going to spend today's show talking about Apple and Facebook, two businesses that we, frankly, spend a lot of time on. Um, and I'm wary of over-covering them because, you know, they're, they're very popular. They're very widely reported on. I look at both of the earnings that we're going to discuss today, though, and say, you know, these are companies that are at kind of critical crossroads. Uh, for Apple, it's a change in how they're actually doing some of their reporting, and I think this is the first time we're getting a glimpse at that. For Facebook, it's it's a business that has some serious risks to address, and I think for those reasons, even though we talk about them quite a bit, it's worth diving into these releases, Evan. Yeah, I think that both companies are definitely facing their own respective challenges in different ways. Um, and, and, I mean, it's not often you hear about Apple facing these iPhone, but that's exactly what's happening. I mean, total revenue fell 5% to $84.3 billion. Net income was about flat at $20 billion. But earnings per share hit a new record of $4.18 just because Apple just keeps buying back so much stock that, you know, that profit gets spread out across a fewer number of shares. So it's, you know, highly accretive to earnings per share. iPhone revenue, of course, is a, a big one there, and that fell 15% to $52 billion. But outside of the iPhone segment, Everything looked awesome, you know. If you if you just cover up that one part of the the earnings release, everything else looks great, Evan. Yeah, everything else was really good, uh, but that's always kind of the the irony is that Apple's kind of a victim of its own success, and that the iPhone was just so successful, it became so big, and such a huge business that you know it's over sixty percent of revenue total. So any any weakness there is going to really hit the overall results, you know, pretty heavily. I mean, but outside iPhone, like you mentioned, I mean, iPad revenue. Uh, put up its strongest growth in nearly six years. It was up 17% to $6.7 billion. Uh, pricing is probably a big big key there, as we've seen them, seen the company do in the past you know, year or two. They've just been really pulling this pricing lever, and the iPad Pros that they launched last year uh, saw some nice little price bumps along with the new design. Uh, Mac revenue increased to $7.4 billion. And then the new the new segment that they established that used to be called other products is now wearables, home, and accessories. Uh, that business saw sales jump 33% to about $7.3 billion. Most of that's being driven by Apple Watch and AirPods. And services, as you know, Apple's talked a lot about services, as we know, for the past two years. New record of $10.9 billion. So for 2018, uh, they did about $41 billion in, in revenue for services. So that's a, a pretty new record, if you know, we talked about it before. But their, their goal is to hit $50 billion by 2020. So, you know, they are you know, well on their way. We knew that a lot of these numbers were going to be coming because we got that note from Tim Cook uh, earlier in the month detailing that they would be below guidance uh, and that they were kind of revising their outlook for the quarter and that Wall Street should be ready for some lower numbers. So we knew generally what the numbers were going to be. I think that when we're looking at this report, it's much more about the story and the commentary that we're getting from management. And this was the first time that we weren't getting the nuts and bolts inputs of iPhone ASPs and units sold. And uh, it's a little tough to lose it, especially when the iPhone segment isn't doing particularly well. 
Right, and you're right. I mean, they they did kind of give investors a pretty much you know pretty comprehensive idea of what to expect with that guidance letter. So a lot of that you know kind of a lot of the main headline figures were more or less already known in advance. So yeah, the the big new thing here is that they've changed their financial reporting structure. Uh, as you mentioned, they don't they're no longer giving out unit sales or ASP data. Uh, so you know kind of and you know leaving people in the dark there, which is not a great thing. But on the flip side, now what they're doing is even more aggressively pointing to the services business to say, hey, look how profitable it is, because now they're breaking out cost of sales in products as well as cost of sales and services. So you can get a, a good sense of basically, you know, how profitable is the hardware business versus the services business. And this is the first time they've ever given this kind of uh, data. And services had a 63% gross margin, and that was up like five percentage points from a year ago. So that's super profitable compared to the 34% hardware margin that they enjoy on the you know product side of the business. Yeah, so basically $1 in services revenue is worth about $2 in actual product revenue because that margin is so much larger. Um, we got a little bit more color on some of the inputs within the services segment as well. I know I think this is part of management trying to shift the focus and shift the narrative with this business. I appreciate the detail since we're going to be losing a lot of the detail on the iPhone side. Right. And you know, a lot of these services are, are really growing and scaling quite well, which is you know, letting them have some operating leverage, which is why, which is why we see the gross margin expanding. But you know, if, uh, breaking it down a little bit further, Apple Music now has 50 million paid subscribers. Uh, the last update they had given us, investors, was 40 million back in April 2018. And then at some point in 2018, they also said, well, we have 50 million total, including free trials, but that's not really a comparable number because, you know, you really want to focus on the paid side of it. So, yeah, they're at 50, 50 million now on Apple Music. They have 360 million paid subscriptions going across all their platforms. Uh, that's kind of the same pace that they've been adding every quarter. They add about 30 million. So kind of, you know, more of the same there in terms of the trajectory. Uh, they do now expect to hit 500 million paid subscriptions at some point in 2020. And one of the numbers that I loved in this release was the breakout of how important any of these individual service segment customers are to the overall services revenue. Uh, this is kind of the breakout that you'd expect to see from a maybe software as a service company going public and trying to explain, you know, we are pretty well diversified among our customer base. We are not too reliant on one. In the case of Apple, I think the largest uh, customer when it comes to services is a fraction of a percent of revenue. Right, so the, you know, I think that they were trying to distance themselves from this problem they've had over the past few years that we've just kind of touched on, which is so much of the biz overall business is concentrated on the iPhone, and that's a blessing and a curse because it becomes this, you know, concentration risk. So you know, Luca Maestri, the CFO, was kind of trying to highlight how the services business is much more diversified, larger subcategory within the services business is about thirty percent of revenue, uh, and there are over thirty thousand different services, or excuse me, different subscription apps available. And the biggest of them is 0.3%. And I think it's pretty obvious that that's Netflix, which there's you know some interesting implications there too. But yeah, I mean, overall, they're not relying too heavily on any one third-party app or subscription uh, to, gen to, to really grow this business. And it's funny because we look at services and we say, well, it's not the biggest piece of the pie in terms of revenue for Apple. Uh, and in the scale of Apple, sometimes you forget that this business is on the scale of most multinational companies. You know, this this services segment they have. And the level of detail we're getting now reminds me of the kind of reporting you would get for almost any other services company. Uh, it, for them, it just happens to be nested within this larger hardware empire. 
Right, exactly. So now they're going to start giving more information about the installed base. So they also disclose for the first time ever uh, what the iPhone install base is. I mean, people have been trying to you know, come up with third-party estimates for you know, always, but you know, Apple now says, "Hey, we have 900 million iPhones uh, that are that's our install base right now. That's up 75 million over the past year." And like you know, to your point, that's kind of like how a company like Microsoft might talk about its office business in terms of like how many commercial seats do they have or how many consumer seats do they have. So it's all about the seats that you have that are you know, generating that recurring revenue. So you know, the installed base is really the the driver behind the services business because the you know Apple's challenge is to try and get more people to be subscribing and paying for these things, and they are making progress on that front. Evan, I want to spend a little time talking about some of the major challenges that led to this revised guidance that we saw. Um, Tim Cook spent some time on this during the conference call, and I think it's worth looking at these because when I take a big picture look at this business, a lot of this doesn't seem like simply one quarter issues. This seems like stuff that might plague the business for a while. And one of the things that he focuses on is the fact that the strength of the U.S. dollar is making Apple products more expensive in other parts of the world. And in the conference call, he specifically talks about uh, Turkey and the fact that the lira has depreciated, I think, 33% over the past year. And when you think about that type of relative currency depreciation, that just makes Apple products so much more expensive in these other markets. Right, and that's been a real challenge for them. And I mean, here in the U.S., we're not subject to that kind of volatility because obviously Apple prices their products in U.S. dollars, and we're in the U.S., so you know you don't have kind of this kind of volatility associated with foreign exchange rates. Whereas in international markets, particularly emerging markets, when the U.S. dollar is strengthening against the local currency, Apple has to adjust its prices and effectively increase its prices just to bring the same amount of money home in U.S. dollar terms. But from a local consumer's perspective, you know, this iPhone, you know, has just gone up in price over the past year. I mean, for example, you know, Tim Cook mentioned that, you know, the iPhone XS starts at $1,000. Last year's iPhone 10 also $1,000. But if, you know, you're a local consumer in one of those, you know, international markets, 10s might start 20% higher than 10 did last year. And that's not something that's, you know, good for sales, that's hard to justify to consumers, because they don't care about the foreign exchange implications to Apple. They just want to get a good product. Yeah, and for a while it has been a, something that they haven't been as concerned about. You know, they've done hedging on foreign exchange, but they haven't really worked that as much into their pricing strategy. It seems like that might be shifting a little bit. Right. So now they're going to basically say, you know, we're going to try to eat these costs, you know, absorb the impacts if these these foreign currencies are moving against us. They're going to try their best not to you know, raise prices and just kind of absorb it to you know within their organization, which could hurt profitability. Uh, and like you mentioned, you know they do have this hedging program in place, so you know they're going to try to use that hedging program in, in as many markets as they can to uh, you know predict and you know offset these these movements. But of course, currency markets are very volatile, and if they're more volatile than Apple expects. Then you know that that's where it could start to eat into their profits a little bit, you know, depending on how these things play out. One of the other major points that Tim Cook emphasized in the conference call uh, was the disappearing subsidies in the wireless market, and this is something that I think a lot of U.S. consumers are probably pretty comfortable and with and understand conceptually at this point because we're several years out from a lot of the major providers like uh, Verizon, AT and T, etc giving you that, hey, you can get the newest iPhone for 200 bucks, 250 bucks. We're going to eat the cost above that because we want you on our network. Um, that is not the case in other markets. There are other markets where subsidies uh, in the wireless space are much more common or were 
they're kind of getting rolled back a little bit as well. Right. I mean, the, in the U.S., it's probably been, you know, what is it, two, three or four years that that the subsidy model started to go away, mostly thanks to T-Mobile shifting towards this kind of more transparent installment plan model and leasing model where you know, you know exactly what you're paying and, you know, you spread it out over time, which is you know, a subsidy kind of hid that cost from you. And, you know, we all U.S. consumers, when we kind of started to get come around to the new model, there was a sticker shock of like, oh, wow, smartphones actually cost five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars or now a thousand dollars. But yeah, in other markets like Japan, I mean, they're still you know, uh, predominantly on the subsidy model. So those markets still have to kind of make the transition that the U.S. did a couple of years ago. And that is just going to sting the ability for them to charge high prices uh, on top of some of the other Forex issues that they might be running into. Um, one of the other things they emphasized is the battery replacement program. We've talked about this in the past, but I think it's worth repeating here. Um, that is something that undeniably extended the useful life of models that people already had, which made them far less likely to upgrade to the new stuff that Apple has made available. Right, and I think that they um, replaced an estimated 11 million batteries under the program throughout all of 2018, uh, whereas on a normal year they'd only replace one or two million. So that's you know nine or 10 million devices that had batteries replaced that could have turned into sales. Uh, and I, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I you know ran the numbers a while ago. And it's, it's, it's billions of dollars worth of lost, potentially lost sales of people that might have upgraded their phones that year, uh, but instead just got a battery for 30 bucks. Yeah, so a lot of big issues. I think the biggest, though, and and anyone that has been following the Apple story so far uh, is China. And you know, they they said that basically the miss is almost single-handedly attributable to China and them just not anticipating what will be happening in that market uh, and the way that it would play out over the last couple months. I don't really think that that's going to change anytime soon, Evan. Yeah, I mean, Greater China was by far the big weakness here. I mean, sales fell. Almost 30% to like 13 billion, uh, and iPad, Mac, and iPhone all declined. Uh, <clears throat> and you know th- that weakness is really only partially offset by this the strength in other areas. But you know, I mean, there's ongoing trade tensions with the U.S. Uh, that's also this sense of like economic nationalism. Like a lot of Chinese consumers are kind of you know trying to stay away from foreign brands and buying these local. Um, local brands like Xiaomi or Huawei, who are also making really good phones at very affordable prices nowadays. So I think it's like this culmination of like all these different factors, uh, some of which are macroeconomic and you know beyond Apple's control, but some of them are are very much within Apple's control. Thinking about how all this might play into the business for the quarter that we're currently in, and that they'll be reporting uh, when they give results in May, they're forecasting revenue between fifty-five billion and fifty-nine billion. If they were to get the upper end of that guidance range, they'd be coming in where the wall where Wall Street is expecting them to. Um, it seems like it's possible that we could be looking at another somewhat disappointing quarter from this company when they report again. Yeah, that's all I was surprised about because the market liked the report report overall and Apple shares went up, but their guidance wasn't that great. So I mean, it could be that you know people thought they were going to issue way even worse, and then it wasn't as bad as they thought they were going to be. But yeah, they're going to have to stretch just to heat hit basic consensus estimates on revenue. And at the same time, you know, there's they've talked a lot about the, all these challenges that they're facing, and you know they're they're working hard to tackle them and address them. But I mean, we'll have to see. You know, in over the next couple of months, what kind of progress they make on these important fronts? Apple feels to me a lot like a company that is trying to kind of find a new identity. Um, they know that the growth lever that they've had for a really long time, the iPhone segment, 
isn't what it uh, has been historically and that the game is changing a little bit. Um, they seem to have understood that well and started to build out and emphasize this services segment. But I don't know that from a share price perspective or from a growth perspective, we're at a point where that's going to be immediately realized anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, this transition to like emphasize the services business has been going on for about two years now. And, you know, it's it's still very obvious to me that most investors are still very focused on this iPhone business, unit sales, hardware sales, because the reality is that that still is the bulk of the business. So I think it is going to take more time still before investors kind of, you know, you know kind of shift their perception and, and appreciate that, yeah, you know, this hardware sales piece is really important, but, you know, these services business is growing really well and it's much more profitable as they're, as they're now showing so i think that they are making progress in getting people where they want in terms of perception but i do think it's going to take a little bit more time all right evan we want to talk facebook today too and and i think it's kind of funny that we're talking about apple and facebook in the same show because these are two companies that maybe aren't particularly thrilled with each other right now yeah they had this little um dispute this week's um to kind of try to sum it up Quickly, uh, Facebook's been just using an enterprise developer certificate to distribute this research app that was basically spying on people. And Apple revoked their certificate, and that broke all of their internal development apps. <laughs> uh, at this point, they've given it back, so you know, I think everything's okay now. But I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty big conflict between the two because Apple is so pro privacy, and Facebook has had so many privacy scandals. <laughs> And this is the latest in a series of jabs, public jabs, you know, between Zuckerberg and Apple CEO Tim Cook. Um, I think that they like to get in their shots when they can. But the episode recently, you know, came out about them kind of taking advantage of uh, some of this access to get some more consumer data and paying for it, but still being a little shady in that. It reminds me of this thought that I had a little while ago, which is I think that Facebook is kind of the Wells Fargo of tech at this point. You know, you look at this company and you're like, okay, I think we've gotten through it. I think we've weathered all of the bad news that could possibly come up. And just when you get there, there's another headline, Evan. It's just back to back to back. It's really crazy how, like, you know, the, the media is able to just keep digging up all these stories and every story that comes out is just. Facebook doing more shady stuff. And I mean, the whole, the recent episode really just also highlights how much power Apple has over Facebook. If they can flip a switch and just break all of Facebook's stuff. Uh, and, and I mean, Apple's right. I mean, Facebook was very clearly violating its policy with how these certificates are supposed to be used. But it is just interesting because, you know, one of the biggest risk factors to Facebook has always been that it relies almost entirely on these third party mobile platforms for its business. I mean, 93% of Revenue, uh, advertising revenue is, is mobile ads. So if Apple were to, you know, and Apple totally controls that business. I mean, theoretically, not that this would happen, but if Apple were to take Facebook's app off the store, Facebook is just toast. <laughs> it would take something pretty ridiculous for them to do that. Um, we mentioned all the, all the trouble they've had and all the bad news that's come out, and yet the business just keeps churning along. You know, you would think that at some point it would be the straw that broke the camel's back. We look at the user numbers, we look at the revenue that we've gotten uh, in this most recent report that came out this week. Everything's coming up aces for them. And that's the same way it's been like all year, all 2018. It's just scandal, 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 scandal. Almost every quarter, they're putting up just strong numbers. I mean, the the in the summer, they reported earnings and had a huge drop because they 
because of the guidance, but the user numbers have been resilient this entire time. I mean, the fourth quarter alone, I mean, revenue was up about 30% to $16.9 billion, and they also hit a record profit of like $6.9 billion. So, I mean, these numbers are just astounding. And on the user side, DAUs reach $1.5 billion, which is up 9%. So, they have a denominator that is at a billion plus, and they're still able to grow DAUs 9%. MAUs also up 9%, reaching $2.32 billion. Most of that growth is coming from developing parts of the world. All of the uh, markets that they were in early, like the United States, North America, Europe, those are pretty saturated at this point. So I think a lot of the user growth is coming from uh, the Philippines and kind of uh, countries like that. Right. And but even beyond like the user numbers, in terms of monetization, I was also really impressed with their advertising average revenue per user in North America hit a new record of thirty four dollars, which is just insane. I mean, I thought it was good at twenty four which was you know, a few quarters ago, but now they're all the way up to $34. And so, I mean, they're just continuing to really ramp this monetization. And of course, there's a lot going on there with the, you know, the dynamics of the ad business, but the overall number is just incredibly strong still. One number that does kind of speak to that uh, and where the additions are coming from on the user side and how that impacts the business is we saw that ad prices went down. I think they were down about 2% uh, year over year. And that is because um, the ability to monetize some of the people that are coming on uh, in developing markets just isn't there in the same way that uh, American users or Canadian users or European users would. Uh, there's a different value in terms of ad reach uh, to those different regions. So that is probably going to continue to happen a little bit as we see more and more of the growth come from developing parts of the world. Um, another thing to kind of keep in mind as you're looking at that ad price number is that a lot of the ad load in the feeds for Facebook and for Instagram is fairly saturated as well. And so, a lot of the new impressions that we're going to be seeing on these platforms are going to be in the stories product, which is kind of new testing ground for a lot of these ad companies. Right. I think that they said th- uh, ad impressions were up like 34%, and that's primarily being driven by Instagram. And you know, some of the also slippage in the pricing is, I think they also mentioned, is you know, some of the usage of their services is shifting towards kind of these features that are less uh, monetized currently, like stories. But they have started to monetize stories now. Uh, they have 2 million advertisers that are already promoting inside of stories. Um, so I think that there are, you know, they basically have to kind of navigate that shift. But they've, they've been able to navigate these types of shifts in the past. So I would be pretty confident that they'd be able to do that again. Uh, but that, that is kind of part of what, you know, the, the challenge is right now with being able to transition there. All told, the company said that they have 2.7 billion people using one of their properties in the month of December, which is just incredible. Um, I think management's emphasis of that number speaks to a larger organizational philosophy of, okay, let's look at everything holistically. Let's look at all of this as a portfolio of properties rather than just one, just one other one over here and a third and fourth. Right, and they, and they first introduced that metric last summer, uh, this like family wide audience metric, and back then it was like two point five billion, so now it's at two point seven. So you know that number is still growing, but yeah, I agree that I think that you know a lot of what's happening is that you know the core Facebook platform has always been obviously very important, but most of the growth these days are coming from other platforms like Instagram. So the more more significant financially that these other platforms become, then it kind of calls into question like. Okay, when are you going to start breaking out more detailed results and metrics and give investors this transparency around these other businesses that are super important? So I think that basically what this family-wide audience number does is it's kind of acknowledging that, yes, this is really becoming more important 
beyond outside of Facebook. But instead of giving us like breaking down numbers here and there on each individual platform, they're just going to combine it all. And, you know, I think it makes a lot more sense that way because, you know, if you look at it, they also advertise across all platforms. Like when you're buying an ad on, on Facebook, you can have them automatically place it for you. And that basically can place it on any of their platforms. So, you know, in a, in a sense, they already treat them all like one platform. Um, so this is just kind of reinforcing that approach. And it also kind of ties into this major news item we saw a little while back about the company deciding to merge some of the messaging apps and kind of looking at what they're doing with WhatsApp and the end-to-end encryption and possibly rolling that into uh, some of the properties that people are maybe a little bit more familiar with with Messenger. Right. And, you know, so that report came out a few days before the release, but then, you know, Mark Zuckerberg basically confirmed the plans, uh, saying that, yes, we are looking at integrating these messaging services a little bit more because, you know, there's a lot of times when you, you know, think about like you're a user that's like looking at a classified ad on Marketplace and then you want to message the, you know, the listing and you're interested in buying it, but then you have to go to Messenger. But what if you're in an, an emerging market where WhatsApp is the kind of the big popular service there? Then you have to go to WhatsApp. You know what I mean? So there's just all these different ways, and that can be kind of jarring. So I think that the idea is to kind of unify these apps, allow you to message across the services better uh, for the sake of user experience. Looking forward, Facebook is trying to wave the flag a little bit and say more revenue deceleration is coming this is something that they've been trying to get the street to understand for quite some time. Uh, we talked a little bit about the reasons for that in that the ad loads are pretty saturated on the news feeds for Facebook and Instagram. Most of the growth is going to be coming from stories, which have lower CPMs. Um, and so much of the opportunity still remains very untapped. I think if you look over at WhatsApp and Messenger in particular, um, they've done a little bit of testing there. But by and large, there isn't a lot there in terms of activity that's monetized, and it doesn't really seem like they're in any rush to do it. Right. I mean, Instagram is is really up and running and just you know charging forward with monetization. But you know, messaging services have always been a little bit trickier to to get a good model on how to monetize the usage. And I mean, they're very upfront that it's basically immaterial at this point. I mean, they have ads in these products. They also have these you know connecting businesses to consumers but these aren't really bringing in a lot of money so they're, they're still not really meaningful in terms of financials right now uh, but I do think that you know they can focus on that later uh, but you know I think that you know the, the real key is going to be to be able to grow revenue even if it's decelerating because they have big plans in store in terms of like their costs and investments in the business um, you know capital expenditures they're expecting to go up by you know 40 50 percent next year or excuse me, total costs are supposed to go up 40 50%. So that's $43, $46 billion in total costs for next year. CapEx will be like 18 and $20 billion. So, I mean, they, they are investing heavily in the business, particularly on the safety and security side. I think Mark Zuckerberg said they tripled their workforce uh, from like 10000 to 30000 So, I mean, I think they're going to have to grow that top line to you know, pay for all that stuff. <laughs> and that is hopefully addressing a lot of the criticisms that the company has very rightly had to field over the last couple of years. Um, something that was kind of curious to me in this report, Evan, a little buried in there, wasn't in the PR part of the release, but if you look over the 10K, uh, we see in Facebook's release the, the mention of Amazon. Yeah, they, they actually mentioned Amazon as a competitor in advertising for the first time ever, which you know we've talked about before, but Amazon is really you know, expanding aggressively into advertising because, of course, advertising and commerce go hand in hand and, you know, 
they're just such a huge player in commerce that they have a huge opportunity with just having merchants advertise on Amazon directly as opposed to Google or Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And so you see both of these companies kind of treading into the other one's space a little bit, you know, with with Facebook deciding to focus a little bit more on commerce and seeing what the opportunities might be there uh, on Instagram in particular, because it lends itself so well with product featuring uh, and Amazon deciding we're, we're going to kind of check out ads and see what we can do there. Um, it's kind of funny to see them dipping their toes in each other's ponds, so to speak. Yeah. And, and it really kind of speaks to, you know, Facebook really, you know, 2018 was all about beefing up safety and security after all of these scandals. And I think that, you know, now that they've made a lot, some progress on that front, obviously there's still new scandals coming out <laughs> every week, apparently. Um, but I think 2019, they're going to try to kind of refocus back on core product development. And, you know, Zuckerberg was saying that, you know, they want to be introducing new social experiences, new ways for people to interact and connect on their platform. And, you know, commerce is certainly a part of that. And I think that a big part of that is the acknowledgement that the way that they've made money over the past couple of years, especially on the namesake platform, isn't necessarily how they're going to make money in perpetuity. You know, they, they need to add functionality to these platforms and they need to build out new ways to monetize their users um, because, you know, there are ad dynamics that are going to impact their ability to continue to make solid revenue uh, on those experiences. Right. I mean, their other segment, you know, payments and other fees actually went up about 40%. Um, but that was actually driven mostly by their hardware side, which is you know, a new business for Facebook. Uh, Oculus Go, which isn't exactly new, but Oculus Go is a new product and they're ramping that. Portal is definitely a new product and that's Facebook branded hardware. And Zuckerberg said that that, you know, beat his expectations. But I don't know how many people actually bought that thing <laughs> or are willing to put a Facebook camera in their home after all these privacy concerns. So I wonder how low his expectations were. But, you know, there, there are other parts of the business, to your point, that, you know, they're diversifying outside of ads and they're, they're finding new ways to build this business. I would like to put a call out to our listeners here. Uh, I have not seen a Facebook portal in person. Uh, Evan, it doesn't sound like you own one in your home either. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> and so if anyone does have experience with one, uh, I would love to hear about that uh, and just kind of what you use it for, because I, that was something that was a head scratcher for me in terms of hardware, especially given a lot of a lot of the news that came out about that company when they decided to make that release. And so I'd love to kind of get the consumer perspective on that. So feel free to write in if uh, if that is your experience. Um, Evan, anything else you want to hit with Facebook or Apple before we wrap up today's show? No, I think we're good. All right, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. A little housekeeping note here. Uh, this is going to be our last episode for a little while with our dear producer, Austin Morgan. He is going to be out of commission for a bit. Yep, getting uh, my labrum and my rotator cuff put back together on Tuesday. So if any of you have any Netflix recommendations, I would gladly take them. Do you have any bits of wisdom for our listeners, having gone through the experience of, of hurting yourself? and <laughs> It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. I, Maybe the story behind how you hurt yourself is, uh, is worth telling. Yeah, so I w- <laughs> we were playing a softball tournament, and last game of the day, we were – about to lose because we lost a girl, so we were down a person. We were losing anyway. Ball hit up the line. I was playing right field and had a full sprint. Took a full speed dive and landed a little heavy. The ground was a little wet, and I stuck and just blew up my shoulder. And here we are. And here we are. So in a couple of weeks, we'll have a new and improved Austin Morgan. But listeners, if you have any suggestions for things for him to do, for things for him to watch while he is hanging out in a hospital bed or hanging out at home, please send them along or any wishes for him. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. 
very much. <laughs> Otherwise, that'll do it for the show. Uh, of course, if you want any more of our stuff, listeners, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out all of our videos from the podcast on YouTube. Necessary disclosure here that people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks again to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. We'll be having Dan Boyd sub in for the next couple weeks. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. Mm-hmm.